So as I've kind of told you, uh, Canada has passed a law limiting free speech on what it considers, and I quote, to propagate myths and stay now follow along this little complex myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation gender identity gender expression including what it calls the myth that heterosexuality cisgender gender identity and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned at birth to a person's birth are to be preferred over other sexual or orientations gender identities and gender expressions and if i'm not mistaken there's uh, a similar law or something to that effect in California as well uh, at some level. But what that says is that the bill, the bill directly comes against parents, pastors, counselors, Christians who would seek to offer biblical counsel or a, a Christian worldview in the area of sexuality um, when speaking about sexual immorality and gender, that it, it speaks against that. So Christians now in Canada, speaking out of a biblical sexual ethic, face up to a five-year prison term. Yeah, and so uh, you'll probably see me in jail in the next 10 years. But um, Canadian and U.S. pastors have chosen today, the 16th of January, to preach in solidarity on that subject, and I just wanted to include myself. I'm not doing that out of anger. I'm not doing that out of like some great thing. I'm doing that because it's important that we are able to say what the scriptures say about these issues, and we should say it first here in church, all right? So um, this sermon is PG-13. Now, I don't see any little kids, so that's good. I'm not going to say anything that you haven't heard, already heard in your life, and, and I think I've worded it fairly maturely. Now, I do want to say that 30 years ago, I heard a woman speak on this, uh, this topic, and she was brilliant, and her ideas, her words, the direction of it just filtered into this sermon. So, uh, but for the life of me, I cannot find out who she was. So if she's out there in the you know, internet world, and you hear your words spoken, I just want to know, I want to give you credit, <laughs> so I will if you tell me who you are. But, um, but basically, the sexual appetite of a human being is like a 90-pound jockey trying to control a 1,200-pound racehorse, right? How do you do that, right? Um, how do you control yourself while bombarded daily with imagery and ideas that are, that are put in place to stoke desire? right? It's very difficult. Are there boundaries, right? Is there right and wrong? As you get older, it gets easier. <laughs> but when you're young, man, it is really difficult, right? Now, some of you will take my words as judgment today. You're going to negate. You're not going to hear the, the words of grace and mercy embedded in this sermon, and you're going to walk away from here feeling judged, feel, feeling despair. And I say to you that I want you to listen carefully and, uh, you know, to the grace that is conveyed in these words and also to take stock of how you live, right? So if you need to, repent maturely, right? It, you know, if, if that's needed in your life, don't overreact, don't overcompensate and throw out something that might be actually really wonderful and it may have great potential, like a good relationship that you just need to adjust. We are not here to heap guilt and pass judgment. It's not my job to pass judgment, right? Um, but also, there are skeptics among you who don't buy into the Christian sexual ethic 
as traditionally uh, communicated, and, may, and maybe I would say not always well communicated, right? Um, and you may walk away feeling that you don't have to think any differently, right? To you, I want you to burn a little bit. I want you to feel it. I want you to be open-minded. I want you to think. I want you to know that it's healthy to be challenged in your ideas sometimes and to, to often to feel the weight of an issue that you really don't want to feel sometimes, right? So listen to God's word. Don't listen to Jason. Listen to God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you uh, and respond to him with maturely, maturity, right? So Ephesians 5, 3 through 12 is where we're going to center ourselves today, but we're going to look at a bunch of other passages as well. And Ephesians 5 is heavy, strong words, in this day and, an age, day and age, and I want you to listen to it. But among you, there must not be a, even a hint, even a hint of sexual immorality. Now, what does that mean? That means that not even if you're not doing something wrong, but it looks like you're doing something wrong, there, not, there shouldn't be that. So your girlfriend's sleeping over at your apartment, and you're sleeping in separate rooms, and you're trying to be good about it, but your neighbors don't believe that, right? That's a hint of sexual immorality. That's not allowed, right? We've cut corners here a lot. So, but among you, of you, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For, for of this... You can be sure no immoral, immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, he's speaking of people that have totally given themselves over to something. He's not talking about the regular Christian struggling in certain areas, right? Just be aware of that. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, because it's the empty words out there, the ideas and the philosophies of life, the worldviews of life, that deceive us and make us to do certain things, right? Uh, you don't do anything without thinking at first. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, I want you to see yourself this morning as light in the Lord, right? Um, live as children of light, and that's the phrase I really want you to hone in on. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. So such strong words may feel too much to bear in such a sexually charged society as ours, right? And I think we need to understand the context of why God speaks in this way in passages like this in Scripture. So I want you to imagine that you are, that we are all players in the story that started way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we know that that was a beautiful place, right? It was, a, it was they, they lived in perfect, perfect harmony with each other and with God. They were naked, right? And they were husband and wife, and they were to come together in, uh, in the physical act of lovemaking, right? To procreate, right? Fidelity and faithfulness, two very important words. Fidelity and faithfulness were at the heart of their relationship with each other. Fidelity and faithfulness at, that, at the heart of that relationship and their, the heart of the relationship with God, with them and God. So it was the perfect marriage, right? 
It really was. Now imagine, if you can, if what if Satan had never turned up, right? What if the fall never happened, right? What would it be like right now if the fall never happened? What happened, by the way? Well, it wasn't that God was just upset about an apple, a piece of fruit or something like that, right? The real problem was that they were duped into thinking that they could live for themselves, right? That they, they, they could decide how they should live, right? The real problem is that they were duped into thinking that they could decide how they should live. And they knew the difference between good and evil at that moment. They just had to go to God for it, right? So we've got to ask, who is Satan? Who's that guy in the character? Who's that character in the story, right? Well, scholars tell us that he was a beautiful archangel who tried to usurp the throne of God and was cast down, right? And, and he couldn't beat God at his game, right? He knew that. He figured that out. But at least he could sort of destroy God's special garden and, and make a mess of these little vulnerable creatures living within it. Maybe in his initial attempt to usurp the throne of God, he sensed that God had a weak side, right? That God had a tenderness and a gentility about him, right? And, and, and how God's willing to give of himself and be hurt in relationship with us, with his people. Maybe he misread that vulnerability as a weakness, and now all he wants to do is to make a mess of God's creation, he desires to divert the worship of God's creation to himself. Important point, I'll say it twice. He desires only to divert the worship of God's creation to himself. So we know, and you've heard me say many times, God desires worship, but his worship is never coerced. It's never forced upon us. It's an act of free will to worship God, and that's true worship, isn't it? But Satan, his worship is always coerced. Not even caring that, that coerced worship isn't really true worship at all, right? And, and that, that you don't even know that you're worshiping him. He doesn't care if you know that, right? He only cares that you are not worshiping God, right? So Satan convinced Adam and Eve that maybe God was holding out on them you know, that they could be better than God, that they could decide for themselves how they should live, they should make all their decisions themselves, and that they didn't need to be dependent on God for their knowledge of good and evil, right? So he manipulated them, right? He, he decide for yourself how you're going to live, decide for yourself who you're going to marry, what you're going to be, what you're going to do in life. Satan craved God's glory, and he will take worship by default, even though it's not real worship coming from free will in a healthy relationship. And that this deception of Satan opened out all-out war on God's wonderful plan for the world, right? So when they no longer were faithful to God, why be faithful to each other, right? Why bother imaging a God you're not really going to follow, Right? Good question. Now, you got to remember, it wasn't their mouths that God covered. It wasn't their eyes that God covered. What did he cover? He covered their genitals. He covered their sexuality, like their, that, those physical parts of us, right? So what that tells us is that this fall struck at the very core of our sexuality. 
And by default, they place themselves under Satan's dominion and power. So from Adam and Eve, it all went downhill from there, didn't it, right? We, we know they, they hid their differences. They exchanged harmony for hostility. They came under the dominion of a, of a being that sought only to destroy them. God allowed them to stray. It's what they wanted. God won't force worship, right? Then we go to Cain and Abel. We have the first murder. And from there to Noah and the starting over by God because the Noah, the Noah narrative uh, says that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. So it had gotten pretty bad. You, we think it's bad now in society. It's been this bad before, right? God was saddened and he decided to start over with one faithful family, making a covenant with them, asking them to live on the earth and to fill it, to spread his love from the inside out, right? And then, out of all that, God chose one man, if you remember the story, Abraham, as his reference point, and he was going to build his special people through this guy, right? But he also chose to move his special people to a special place, the promised land called Canaan, right? Now, I just summarized a great deal of the Old Testament, right, with a large history of the Israelites' Their devotion waxing and waning over history. Sometimes they follow, sometimes they don't. They follow God out of Egypt, out into the desert, onto Mount Sinai. They make a golden calf, you know, through all the judges and so on and so forth. And scripture outlines it all. My wife is reading through the Bible right now and she's reading the whole story from start to finish. Very proud of her for that. And I want you to remember that we are all players in that story, his history, his story right? That we are spiritually connected to all those people, all those characters. We're spiritually connected to the the story of the scriptures. And so when we read the Bible, we read the Bible as a part of the continuing story of history, right? So God chose to place his special people in Canaan, but before doing so, he made a covenant with them and he, caused, he said he would cause them to be fruitful, that he, they, would be, they would procreate, that they would, they would fill the earth. So their ability to procreate their sexuality was a part of God's plan from the very beginning, right? And that was to come under his lordship, his direction, He said, kings and nations would come from Abraham and Canaan will be yours and so on and so forth. And it all sounds very promising. And you can read that all in Genesis chapter 17. However, God chose to to command them to do something very strange. And I'm sure you have thought about this. And that is to circumcise all of the males of Israel. That's a really strange thing if you think about it. Why would he ask us to do that? Why is that? Why is that act a symbol of commitment and obedience to the Lord, right? What what is he saying to his people in such a graphic and painful way? Good question, right? Well, you have to understand that Canaan was a very darkly religious place that involved itself in a great deal of idol worship. And they didn't know the God of Israel. Israel was bringing the God of Israel's ways to them. Right, So they didn't know any of that yet. Now maybe when you were a kid, maybe you went to Sunday school, and maybe you were taught in Sunday school about idol worship, right? 
And, and people had temples and little statues of wood or stone and blah, blah, blah. And they might place these things in their homes or on a mantle or in a corner someplace and, and bow down to them. And it all seemed very harmless. You know, why was God so upset about this other than it wasn't him that they were worshiping, right? Well, we're all enlightened people. We know that little pieces of stone or wood don't have any power or effect to, to harm you in life. We know that. From, from Sunday school, we just viewed these people as bowing down to an idol and then going about their, their business throughout the day. No big deal. But what you weren't taught in Sunday school, because you were a kid, right? What you weren't taught in Sunday school was the actual extent and the form that that worship took right? They were worshiping a number of gods, right? Baal, the supreme deity of many gods for one, he was the male deity of of land or fertility, and his name meant landowner. Then you have Ashtoreth, and uh, she was also known as Venus in Rome or Aphrodite in Greece. If you watch the Greek Olympics, you remember the, the woman that rose up out of the stage, giant statue, that was Aphrodite, right? Um, she was known as Ishtar in Babylonia and other names throughout history in different you know, places and stuff. And she uh, was the goddess of fertility and war, and she was imaged by Asherah poles. And Asherah poles were simply phallic symbols, large phallic symbols that were placed around the high places. So wherever you looked, you were reminded of Asherah and this, this worship. And so they believed that if these, these deities saw them in lascivious acts that they would be aroused and then they would bring forth rain on the land and make it fruitful. And with, so therefore, within this religious structure was a temple priesthood of good-looking young folks, most likely. And as your act of worship, you would go to the temple and you would perform sexual acts with these temple prostitutes. Acts like orgies or incest or homosexual acts or adulterous acts as your spiritual worship, which, by the way, created a paternity problem. You know, babies with not, no way of knowing who the father really was. And so there was a third god, and his name was Molech, and he was the god of fire, and he demanded child sacrifice, right? So the, he was the solution to the unwanted byproduct of the worship of the other two deities, and he was the abortion solution for an ancient people, and he was one reason why God was so extremely disgusted and angry about this. God's allowed to be angry, by the way. So God chose his people. He made a covenant with them, including circumcision. He chose this special place, Canaan, this dark place of sexual idol worship, right? And he places his people, Israel, right in the middle of that. There's a lot of history there, right? You remember Abraham pulls up his stakes. He goes on to the land of Canaan on that journey. Joseph is sold into slavery. In Egypt, he gains power. He calls on his family eventually, and they, go, they grow like crazy in numbers, right? They're procreating, and this new pharaoh comes along and enslaves them, and then they're called out of Egypt under Moses, and finally Joshua leads them into the promised land, into Canaan. So God immersed the Israelites in this sexual immorality and darkness and sin, right in the middle of it. And the Israelite was supposed to do what? They were supposed to live as a witness of the fidelity and faithfulness of God to his people, 
right? As children of light. That, that was their purpose. It's always been our purpose. Hence the issue of circumcision. That's why it's there, right? God was saying four things when he asked the Israelites to do that strange thing, to circumcise themselves. He was saying, number one, your sexuality and, and your, your worship of me are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. And the male genital is a vulnerable spot and a symbol uh, of great power and procreation. And I want that to belong to me. And I don't say that with a smile. It's a very serious statement. Number two, he said, the power of your life has to be marked by vulnerability to me in this area. In other words, we have to submit ourselves to him. Number three, you need a daily graphic reminder of that belonging and vulnerability. And number four, he was saying, I want you to be a visual reminder to others of your connectedness to me. So interestingly, God chose a sexually immoral place and he asked the Israelites to mark themselves in such a sexual way, right? And if they went into a public bath or they involved themselves in sexual idol worship, you know, of these other deities, everybody would know that they were marked and they they shouldn't be there, right? And so when he instituted circumcision, he was inviting the Israelites to be a part of the redemptive story of the world, right? To be light, to be a witness, to be an image of God's covenant relationship of fidelity and faithfulness to others. And through circumcision, God was asking Abraham to submit himself body and soul, right? The whole man taking ownership of his his virility and his sexuality. God was going to build his nation through Abraham. His people had to be marked and to reflect fidelity and faithfulness. God was starting over his original plan. He was getting busy with it, right? So look if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 it says the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and lives. In other words, there's a direct correlation between human sexuality and spirituality, right? The terminology is exactly the same. So Abraham's sexuality was linked to his spiritual life with God and God's ultimate purpose of building life in this world. God wanted to be in control of his whole being, including his ability to procreate. Abraham's offspring were God's people. You remember Isaac and the three barren matriarchs? God was in control of when they would bear children, and they did at the right time, right? Stuff like that. Sexuality within a covenant relationship was in direct contrast to the pagan beliefs and practices of their sexuality, as it is ours with the society we live in. So now they are a marked people physically and spiritually, and after 40 years, they they come to the point of going into the promised land, and they're led by Joshua. And there were the Canaanites, right? There they were. And God asked them to go in and live as children of light in this land, 
before these other peoples. But although they served the Lord under Joshua, if you remember, later they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it says, and served the Baals and the Asterisks. They conquered the Canaanites physically, militarily, but they were conquered spiritually by the Canaanite worship practices. They prostituted themselves to other gods. They wouldn't listen to the judges. They waxed and waned through history, returning to ways even worse than their forefathers, it says. And then God comes along and he says, I'll no longer drive out the nations due to this. And he uses the enemies of Israel to purify his people. And we find in Numbers 25 that the Israelites didn't even wait before they entered the land, before they started to serve these other gods, and now you know what that entails, and 24,000 were killed at that moment for their disobedience, and Paul references that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So what's the lesson? The lesson is sexual impurity or sexual immorality is not spiritually neutral. Sexual impurity, sexual immorality is not spiritually neutral. Scripture is never teach that it is, right? One commentator writes, this worship of Canaanite deities appealing to every sensual passion joined with the attractions of wealth, fashion, and luxury naturally was a great temptation to a simple restrained agricultural people whose worship and laws demanded the greatest of purity of heart and life. Judges chapter 2 describes the first generations in, in Canaan. It says, uh, after that whole generation had been gathered to their, fa- their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Because they weren't passing it down, right? Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. And you know what that means now. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and Baal and the asterisks. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to the other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who were oppressed and afflicted them, right? So he still, even though they're so disobedient, he still has compassion on them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than their father than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. What a history, right? Judges 17 verse 6 says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone decided for themselves how they wanted to live. Right? That, that's the history. 
So they hammered through this history of judges and kings doing well sometimes and worse later, like yo-yo dieting, right? And, and it's just a really sad story. And in Judges chapter 6, the Israelites want to kill a fellow Israelite because he tears down this altar to Baal. And, you know, they, they built more and more altars involving themselves in sexual worship of these other deities. They burned uh, incense in the place of Yahweh's altar. Uh, in Je- Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 13, it says, You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful God Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. So they built temples for Baal worship. They swore on his name. They set up idols and pagan symbols on their threshing floors and in their wine vats and behind their doors and doorposts. And every time they looked at one of these idols, they would feel aroused remembering the last time they gave them, the, gave them their bodies and sexual worship of them. So they brought Asherah poles into God's temple. They housed temple prostitutes there. They, they practiced all these things in God's temple, and they became polytheistic and polygamous, which always go together, by the way, which always go together. Leviticus 18 describes these practices, and then in verse 21, it outlaws the sacrifice of children. Why would you even have to outlaw that? Wouldn't that be a no-brainer? God had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and cover the earth. That was the original plan. And he was intending to, be, you know, to, to continue his plan through, through Abraham. And Satan was still seeking to destroy God's creation by diverting worship to himself and taking the power of, the, of procreation of Abraham's descendants to himself. Abraham's offspring were being killed off by Satan. And life bearing is a part of our sexuality and God's plan. So what a story, right? What a story. A story about an ancient people, not us, right? You know, none of you have an idol on your keychain or in your pocket or behind your door at, at home. I know that for sure. We are enlightened people. We know our sexuality has nothing to do with our spirituality. God is over here, sex is over there, no mixing, no problem. There are no spiritual powers influencing our thoughts and and actions, tempting us in immoral ways. We know that. We're smarter than that. We choose how we should live. We don't have Asherah poles, and we don't know anybody that worships such things, you know. So what's all this have to do with us, Pastor? Pastor? What's all this have to do with us? Well, remember two things. Sex is an act of worship. And therefore, sexual immorality is not spiritually neutral. Sex is an act of worship, and sexual immorality is not spiritually neutral. It's an act of worship either to something other than God or to God himself in the confines of a heterosexual marriage covenant. And we give glory to Satan by default through coerced worship with every illicit orgasm, with every illicit encounter, with every immoral fantasy, and with every porn image viewed. The enemy pays special attention to this vulnerability in our lives. 
He knows that sexuality is supposed to be directed in worship to God, sex as a spiritual act of worship, mirroring his love relationship with us in fidelity and faithfulness in the confines of a heterosexual marriage covenant. We are weak and we are vulnerable. And we fail just like the Israelites. None of us is perfect and neither one of us should be judging each other. When we understand, though, the context of from where God speaks in these difficult passages, we understand those passages in, you know, in, in all of Scripture, New Testament and Old Testament, which warn against this sexual impurity. When we use our, sexual, our sexuality outside of what God created it to be, we offer something good and something holy to Satan who doesn't have our good in mind at all. By default, we further Satan's goals and his glory and not God's. Artist Andre Serrano created an image, and this is his title, called the Piss Christ. And uh, he sought to offend Christians for feeling judged as a homosexual. And it was a crucifix in a beaker filled with cow's blood and his own urine. You may have seen it before. Senator Al D'Amato that year ripped up a copy on the Senate floor. Newt Gingrich said, this is prototypical of the cancer that is eating away at our society. Attempts to destroy it uh, caused the National Gallery of Australia to close uh, that year. But what man intends for evil, we often find that God uses for good, right? Because Andre Serrano unwittingly created something which illustrates the gospel of Christ all too well. Really, it's a really good illustration. I was so excited when I saw it, and I'm an artist, so I get into that stuff. But remember, we are all players in this story, in this continuing story, and Ephesians 5.8, to live as children of light, is a charge to us as well, right? And God chose us, like the Israelites, to be immersed in a dark culture and to live as light within it. There's no greater calling that you have on your life than to be a part of the redemptive story in history, living as children of light among the dying and the lost. By the way, I went to the farm show at Harrisburg yesterday, and my daughter walked by this guy. He goes, he goes can I ask you a question? And she said, what? He goes, if you died today, would you go to heaven? She goes, I most certainly would because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And he goes, oh, good. And then I, I said, oh, I want to walk by and see if he asked me. So I, went by, I walked by. And he, and he was a young guy, too, and he, he, said, uh, he said the same thing. And I said, well, I am a pastor, so I hope I've got it right. And um, he started laughing. And then I started talking to 100 people they led to the Lord this week at that little booth. Isn't that awesome? 100 people. Just side note, sorry. Um, but this is our immersion experience as Canaan was for Israel. This is our immersion experience. Will we be faithful? Will we be children of light in this dark world? And like them, we are humbled, you know, realizing that we aren't only the crucifix that is immersed in a dying world to be light. We are also the beaker that contains the blood and the urine and the sin of our lives. And God chose to immerse himself in us to change us from the inside out. And now... He wants to use us in the lives of others 
We are all witnesses of Jesus, immersed in the blood and urine of America to be salt and light. And we are able to remain committed and true to God by submitting our sexuality to him. As 90-pound jockeys, we may not be able to handle a 1,200-pound horse, but God can. And God's word and his spirit are like the bit and the bridle in the mouth of that sexuality, directing it in good and healthy ways. So sex isn't dirty. It's not wrong. It's not outside of God's intent. But it is a reflection of what our relationship is to him, and others need to see that. Proper sex within the heterosexual marriage covenant and in the patient waiting of the single person before they get married is glorifying to God and a missionary witness to the world. Did you hear that? Maybe you never considered your sexuality uh, as a witness for Jesus. Maybe you never considered that. In Indonesia, I guarantee you, the faithfulness and the fidelity of my marriage was profoundly useful to God in so many conversations in my witness to Muslims. Just as my single teammate, a woman of 25 years old, was when she submitted herself to the Lord in this area. You know, at times it seems like everybody in this world is involved in some sort of a wrong relationship or pornography or just an abusive situation. And like a great jockey, we do have a shot at being triple crown winners. We just can't allow ourselves to be manipulated by the dark and errant cultural narrative, which comes deeper from someplace else, by the way. I want you to listen to God speaking to his people after they've fallen so far away in sin in Hosea chapter 2. This is what he says to them. Therefore, I am now going to allure her, talking about his people, the church, if you want to call it that. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. Can you imagine a husband forgiving his wife for cheating on him and calling her back? That, this is what God's doing. No longer will their names be invoked, he says. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. In other words, I'll give you what you've always been looking for in those other gods. Verse 23, I will plant for her for, her, her for myself in the land, and I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. God wants reconciliation with his people. He is head over heels in love with you. Just absolutely enamored with you. 
He wants you all to himself, and he wants you to desire that in the relationship as well. So he may sometimes need to lead us out into the desert for a while to woo us back to himself. So listen to the grace and the mercy in that passage to a people that have gone very, very far astray. His anger comes down, as I said earlier, a hardest on those who have pridefully just totally given themselves over. But grace is extended in the everyday struggle of the Christian. God's not here to destroy. God is here to bring life. And if we listen to Song of Songs chapter 7 and the allegorical wording describing God and his love relationship with his bride, the church, it is absolutely romantic, sexually charged language. There's nothing wrong with sex, right? God's not a killjoy or a prude. It was created by God for his purposes that, and that drive in us is there for a very important reason. It just needs to be within the confines of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman marked by fidelity and faithfulness in order to fulfill God's plan and mirror his love for us as a people. So how should we respond to God when we've gone far away? Well, let's listen to chapter one of Song of Songs. This is the church speaking to God. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Oh my gosh. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Amen. So in conclusion, remember our sexuality was created as a witness to the faithfulness and fidelity of God to his people. Sexual immorality is not spiritually neutral. Your sexuality is not bad or dirty. God is not uptight, right? That relationship just has to be within the confines of a heterosexual marriage covenant. When you offer your body in erotic pleasure in any form outside of that, you offer it by default to Satan's glory even if you don't know it. God loves you and he wants you to be wholly fulfilled and reconciled to him. And if you repent, he will welcome you with open arms under the new covenant. Don't overcompensate, right? In these harsh passages, I want you to remember concerning the sexuality in the New Testament or old that God is speaking to people that have just wholly given themselves over in syncretic worship of other deities. But at the same time, we need to take this stuff seriously. The Holy Spirit inhabits your being if you are in Christ and he gives you the power to live rightly if you will submit your whole being to him, right? Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except for what is common to man, and God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, right? Remember, God wants worship in our whole lives, not just in song on Sunday mornings. And the sexuality portrayed in our culture is not real. It is unreal, right? Everybody argues about it, by the way, when you get married. Everybody gets fat, everybody ages, and everybody loses that desire after a while. 
Men, if they do already, young women will not always desire you, by the way. If, if they even do now. I don't think they really did me that much, but women, women, men will not fulfill all of your emotional and physical needs in life. That's just an unreal message. But remember, you are the crucifix and the beaker, right? How will you live out your life as a child of light among a lost and dying world? How will you allow Jesus to be immersed in you, changing you from the inside out in this issue of sexuality? And how will you reflect that to the world around you? Amen? That wasn't too bad, was it? Let me pray for us. Father, I I do pray that these words would light on our hearts and our minds in uh, the way that they were intended to. Not in judgment, not in harshness, not in anger, but in just really an aha moment of, wow, what what you really wanted in this world. How you were creating something, how you were bringing things about how you created us body, mind, and soul, and that all of that belongs to you. And that all of that can be absolutely, totally glorifying to you. Not in some holier-than-thou way, but in a real way that is honest and passionate and loving of each other, and of you in that relationship. And we thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.